So the Torah was, the written Torah was originally given to us by Moses just before his death over 3,300 years ago. And we've explained this previously. It was written as a cryptic document to help us preserve the oral Torah that Moses taught us over 40 years. So for 40 years, Moses taught us the oral Torah, the teachings that God had taught him, the law and other teachings that God had taught him. And then at the end of his life, he writes it down in five books and he gave us the Torah. So that is the Torah itself, the written Torah. The Torah itself is all in Hebrew, the entire Torah. There are a handful of words, such as Joseph's name, that are possibly Egyptian. Um, there's, there's two words that are in Aramaic, but the, the whole Torah is in Hebrew um, and always was in Hebrew. Now, over the next thousand years after Moses' death, there were another 19 books that were written that we consider holy. And together, the five books of the Torah and the 19 other holy books together make up our holy scriptures, what we call the Tanakh. We once did a class on the Tanakh where we spoke about it and the um, three, the Torah, Nevi'in, the eight books of our prophets and 11 books of Ketuvim, 11 books of writings. So the Torah itself is all in Hebrew. So is almost the entire Tanakh. There are a few chapters of some of the later books that are in Aramaic. Notably, the book of Daniel has a couple chapters in Aramaic, and the book of Ezra has a couple chapters in Aramaic. But the Jews themselves spoke Hebrew for the first 900 years of Judaism and would have studied the Torah in its original biblical Hebrew. However, about 900 years after Moses, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Jews are all exiled out of the land of Israel to Babylon. And as part of the Babylonian Empire policy, people were encouraged to speak the language of the Babylonian Empire, which was Aramaic. And as a result, Jews stopped speaking Hebrew as their spoken language, and they began to speak Aramaic. Some time ago, we did a class about Jews and Aramaic. So understandably, as long as Jews were speaking Hebrew, there was no need to translate the Torah. The Jews understood it. The non-Jews weren't interested in it. So the Torah was in Hebrew, and that suited everyone just fine. However, now, at this point, once Jews are in Babylon, this is a little over 900, about 900 years after Moses, um, 2,400 years ago, there is now a um, need to translate the Torah, Jews have trouble now understanding Hebrew. Now, even during the time when Jews spoke Hebrew, there is a reference to translating the Torah earlier on. In fact, there's a reference to Moses himself translating the Torah. The beginning of the book of Deuteronomy tells us that at the end of Moses' life, he taught the Torah to Israel, and he gives this long speech which makes up the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the five books of Moses, of the Torah. Um, and it, he gives this long speech, and he teaches the Torah at the end of his life again, repeats it all to Israel, to the people of Israel. And the words the Torah uses that Moshe said the Torah, Ba'er Hetev. Ba'er Hetev probably literally translates as well-explained. Later, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commands the, um, 
Later, at the end of the book, uh, books of the Torah, Moses commands the, uh, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commands the people that when they enter the promised land, they are to take 12 stones and erect 12 stones on Mount Aval. And over there, they are to plast, put plaster on these stones. And then right on the plaster, they are to write the entire Torah. Again, he uses the word ba'er hete, which literally translates as well explained. However, the Midrash tells us that ba'er hete means translated. Translated into 70 languages, meaning both when Moses taught the people the Torah at the end of his life, and later when they write the Torah on stones, um, on Mount Ava, when they enter the Promised Land, they are to write. It is to Moses translated the Torah into seventy languages, and later they are to write it into seventy languages. Where does the number seventy come from? So presumably, the term seventy languages comes from the term uh, comes from the seventy nations. There are seventy nations descendant of Noah that are found in Parshat Noah in the portion of Noah, and. Um, we did a class some time ago about those who are who those seventy nations are. Um, by Moses' days, uh, those seventy nations had probably evolved a little and were no longer numbered. There were other nations that had emerged, and other some of the nations may have disappeared by then. But anyway, they still use the number seventy. Now it's hard to see exactly what it means practically how Moses and the people knew seventy languages, and if they did, how long it would take to even translate the Torah so many times. Perhaps some commentaries say maybe it was only parts of the Torah that were translated. Uh, most importantly, the Jews all spoke Hebrew at the time and didn't need any translations. So exactly what they translated and how they translated, we're not certain of the details. But clearly this is a reference that translating the Torah is a proper and good thing to do. If Moses did it himself and encouraged it and commanded the people to do it when they come into the promised land. Even though the people spoke fluent Hebrew, Moses was teaching the people that translating the Torah is a good thing. We should translate the Torah. And there will come a time when you will no longer speak Hebrew. And there will be a need to translate the Torah. So Moses was essentially opening the door for the possibility of a time in the future, way into the future, because it would be 900 years before the Jews are no longer speaking Hebrew, a time way into the future when there will be a need to translate the Torah, and Moses already allowing for the possibility of translating the Torah. So our first reference to an actual translation of the Torah comes almost a thousand years after Moses, in the book of Nehemiah, which is one of the final books of our scripture of the Tanakh, which covers a period of a thousand years. Um, and over there it speaks of, in Nehemiah in chapter 7, it speaks of Ezra, um, how he was reading the Torah to the people, and it says um, he read the Torah meforash. Meforash literally is usually translated as explained. However, our sages in the Talmud and Megillah say that the word meforash means translated. Ezra translated the Torah. He read it to the people in the temple. He read the Torah to the people. And then he trained in order for them to recommit to the Torah. And then he also translated the Torah for them into Aramaic. At this point, Jews widely spoke Aramaic. Hebrew was no longer widely spoken among Jews. They spoke Aramaic. And so he translated the Torah into Aramaic. It appears from the Talmud that not only did he translate the Torah to them at that reading that they did in the temple, 
But Ezra then composed the official Aramaic, Ezra was the leader of the Sanhedrin, the leader of the Supreme Council of Judaism at the time. And the Supreme Council at the time was an expanded Supreme Council known as the Knesset Haggadola, the Great Assembly. We've spoken about them before. They were the ones that created the whole prayer structure and the synagogue and um, the whole prayer system and blessings that we have today. Um, and really a lot of, uh, and they, um, they also canonized or set the Tanakh, the Holy Scriptures, which books are in, which books are out. Um, and edited them. So these were, um, this was not just any Sanhedrin, any Supreme Council. So they also, led by Ezra, composed the official Aramaic translation of the Torah. The Talmud tells us they went a step further. Um, they went a step further and that Ezra, requ- uh, 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 Re- Ezra made a rule, the, the, the Great Assembly under Ezra made a rule, that from then on, whenever they read the Torah publicly, in the community, now in the synagogue, which was an invention also of the men of the Great Assembly, um, houses for prayer. They didn't have that previously. Um, we spoke about that. We once in a class when the synagogue was in, how the synagogue was invented. Um, and so when Ezra first uh, created the, or how prayer was, it, how prayer began, we, we did. Um, so when they, uh, so when they, he, they instituted that when they read the Torah publicly, they should be a translator. And as they read each verse, they didn't have books, right? So this is before printing. When they read each verse from the Torah to the community, the translator should translate it verse by verse so that the people should understand it and use this official translation that Ezra led the men of the Great Assembly to compose. Now, to be clear, this translation was not written down. Remember, Torah at the time was largely oral. Only the written five books of Moses was written and the other 19 holy books. But the Torah itself, the, the, oral, the teachings of Judaism were all the oral Torah. This is before the Torah was written down. The Torah is not going to be written down until 400 years, over four, 500 years later. So the Torah, we once did a class on the oral Torah and, um, and how the oral Torah developed. So um, at that time, the Torah was still memorized. So this official translation that Ezra composed and the men of the Great Assembly composed was not a written translation. It was, was an oral translation that students would be taught with this translation into Aramaic. And it was an exact wording and they would memorize the wording and they knew it. And that was the wording that they would use. But it was not actually written down. The first written translation of the Torah, and really the first translation, while well, the Aramaic translation of Ezra was for Jews, right? The first translation for non-Jews was done in the early days of the Greek Ptolemy rule over Israel. We mentioned in our class a few weeks ago about Jews and Greeks, that Alexander conquered the Persian Empire a little over 2,300 years ago. And um, he lived, he did, his, his reign was very short, he died young. And then the Greek empire split into multiple different empires. And at first, the land of Israel was under the rule of the Ptolemy, Greek emperors, who were based in Alexandria in Egypt. And so um, one of the early Ptolemy kings, probably about 2,300 years ago, or close to 2,300 years ago, the Talmud tells us the story that he called 72 sages and he placed each of them in separate rooms. 
and he ordered each one to translate the Torah. He forced them. They didn't want to, to translate the Torah for him. Um, why? Presumably, he wanted access to the Torah. He wanted a translation. Some theorize that we know Alexandria had a great library. It had all the books in the world were in this great library in Alexandria that lasted for hundreds of years until it was destroyed by the Romans. And so maybe he wanted a Greek translation in his library. So the Talmud says that he forced each of these seven. Now, he was afraid when he, if he tells the sages to translate the Torah, they wouldn't do it. So he forced them. He was afraid that if he would tell them to do it, they would corrupt the translation and give him a, the wrong translation. So that's why he made each of these 72 leaders, sages, he put each one in a room by themselves and made them translate the Torah alone so that he could then have his own scholars compare the 72 translations and then create an official version. The Talmud says that each sage made 15 changes on their own to the Torah itself. Why? Each one was different places where they were afraid that he would misread the Torah. Some examples at the very beginning, the opening words of the Torah are Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God. That's the way the Torah writes it. Now they were afraid, if they say in the beginning created God, that he would read it as if there was some, a God called in the beginning, and the God called in the beginning created God. So therefore they flipped it and they wrote God created in the beginning. Or it says in the Torah, God completed his work on the sixth day, on the seventh day, and he rested on the seventh day. Why does it say God completed his work on the seventh day? So our sages say either because he, until the six days of creation, he didn't create rest. On the seventh day, he created rest. Or our sages say that God created till the very last moment of the six days of creation. And so therefore it was as if he created it still on the, he completed it on the seventh day as the seventh day entered. However, they were afraid that Ptolemy would misread it. And so thinking that he was working on Shabbat and on the seventh day, and so they wrote he completed on the sixth day and then he rested on the seventh. And so similarly, they made similar changes, um, including um, the, uh, the, the Talmud says the last of the 15 changes they made was that they changed the Hebrew word arnevet. Arnevet is one of the non-kosher animals described, usually translated as a hare or a, um, or a um, rabbit. Some debate as to how to translate Arnevet today. Um, but whatever the translation was, they did not write the translation, but just wrote a small animal because um, the translation to Greek of whatever Arnevet was, the hare or the rabbit, um, was the name of Ptolemy's wife. And they were afraid that he would get them in trouble. They would, he would think that they're making fun of him. So... Um, so anyway, so they made these 15 changes. Miraculously, the Talmud says, all 72 sages made the same 15 changes. This translation of the Torah becomes known as the Septuagint. Septuagint means the translation of 70. It became the classic Greek translation of the Torah. Now, there is another Greek version found in Philo and other places of how the Septuagint was made. It wasn't forced, it was willing. There's another Greek version. But this is the Jewish version. This is the way it's described in the book of the Talmud, in the Talmud of Masech the Megillah. 
In another Jewish source, another early source, Masechet Sofrim, says that the day that the Torah was translated into Greek, which uh, was as bad as the day that the golden calf was made. The golden calf that was made by Israel right after the giving of the Torah, they worshipped the golden calf just as bad. Terrible thing, the day the Torah was translated into Greek. In the book called Megillat Tanit, Megillat Tanit is a work from the Second Temple period that goes through the calendar and tells us all every day what special thing happened on that day. And so um, it goes through various days of the year. It tells us the 8th of Tevet, which is today, the 8th of the Hebrew month of Tevet, is a day of fasting. It's a sad day because that is the day that the Torah was translated into Greek. So what all these accounts... In the Talmud, in Masechet Sofrim, in Megillat Hainet, what they all have in common is that our sages saw the translation of the Torah into, into Greek, the Septuagint, as a bad thing. Now, it doesn't appear that they were concerned with translating the Torah itself. After all, the, the Torah had already been translated by Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly into Aramaic. But rather... What, what, um, but rather, they were concerned about translating the Torah for the non-Jewish Greek emperor, for Ptolemy. The problem was that Ptolemy wasn't Jewish, and he wanted the Torah for Greek scholars to access. Now, what is wrong with non-Jews having access to the Torah? So the fear was that this would lead non-Jews to misunderstand the Torah, and even corrupt it, and use the Torah as a source, their version of the Torah, use it as a source for something that goes against Judaism and against what God wanted. That was their fear. And indeed, although they couldn't have known at the time, they may have suspected at the time, indeed that did happen. The Septuagint became the translation that was widely used by Greek and Romans who believed in Judaism. The Septuagint spread monotheism, succeeded in spreading monotheism, a positive thing, all across the Greek lands and Greek-speaking lands in the Roman Empire. And it led to many, many Greeks and Romans converting to Judaism, but not converting, as we would say, becoming Jewish and keeping the commandments, but becoming what we would call monotheistic, believing in God, believing in the Torah. And over time, they became a source of Christianity and the Christian Bible, which we believe is idolatry. And um, we've done a class on Judaism and Christianity before, uh, a couple years ago. We spoke about the Jewish perspective on Christianity. So that was a serious concern that it would be corrupted and it would later be used as a source for something that goes against Torah and Judaism. And indeed, that concern played out exactly as they thought it would, exactly as they were afraid it would. It became the source of Christianity, the Septuagint, this translation. And you can see in hindsight, although Megillat Tainet was almost certainly written before Christianity began, in hindsight, their, or their foresight that they had, that they saw what would come of this Greek translation. Yes? Well, no matter what you translate it into, you still need to do the oral to really explain it. 
Good point. It was only the written translation without the oral Torah. They didn't have the oral Torah. Our sages were actually happy that the oral Torah never made it to the Greeks because they were afraid if they have the oral Torah, they'll corrupt that too. So that's what the New Testament is. Well, they call it the Old Testament. No, the new one that they... Oh, they corrupt the Torah. Yeah, yeah, they corrupt the Torah. Another concern with the translation was that this new version would become the new version of the Torah for non-Hebrew speakers. Remember, the Aramaic translation was only oral. It was not written down. A Jew who wanted to study Torah needed to have a book of Torah, the original. But if you have a Greek version that is written in a scroll, you could just read the Greek version. You don't need the Hebrew version anymore. And indeed, that appeared to have later happened. As Jews who only spoke Greek and didn't speak Hebrew well, it appears that Jews in Alexandria, Hellenized Jews that became adopted Greek culture, later stopped using the original Hebrew Torah and just used the Septuagint as their Torah. Non-Jews saw the Septuagint as the official Greek version. And indeed, later Christians would only have Greek and later Latin versions of the Torah and wouldn't even have access to the original Hebrew Torah. Christianity today only recognizes Greek and Latin translations and they've totally dropped the original Hebrew Torah. They don't have access to the original. So that was another serious concern that it can take the place of the original Hebrew Torah. Torah, the original Torah. <clears throat> and yet, although our sages were greatly concerned with this Greek translation for the reasons we mentioned, both that it gave the non-Jews the Torah to corrupt, and because it could supplant and take the place of the, of the original, our sages also saw the Greek translation as authentic and very, very well done. Go so far that the Mishnah says that the only language that you can really translate the Torah into is Greek. That's the only real good translation out there. Now, I should be clear that the Septuagint that we have today, which is kind of the source of the Greek, trans the Greek Bibles um, and the Latin Bibles um, of their, what they call, um, of the, at least the five books of Moses. The original Septuagint was five books. Today we have a Septuagint that goes by the name Septuagint of the entire um, scripture, um, whole Jewish scripture. But the... Um, the Septuagint we have today is almost certainly not the original, evidenced by the fact that the 15 changes that our sages said were made by those 72 sages for Ptolemy are not found in the current Septuagint. None of those changes are found in the current Septuagint. They managed to later flip it all, fix it all, um, and undo those changes that the 72 sages made. Um, and many other corruptions um, kind of came into the Torah over time. Remember, everything was copied by hand. We don't have any original books from then. Everything was copied by hand, so there are copies of copies of copies. And until printing, there was really no way to long-term preserve, uh, to have many, many books that were all the same and preserve them long-term. So we don't have any originals. Um, and so there's a lot of corruption in the Septuagint itself. But the original Septuagint, our sages did see as the original, or Tirgum Hashivim, the original Greek translation, they did, although they were very concerned about it, as we mentioned, they did see it as a very authentic translation and very accurate translation. 
Later, many, many years later, um, the first translation of the Torah was probably in the 200s BC. Um, the, uh, later, in the second century, a student of Rabbi Akiva called Akila, or Akilas in Hebrew, um, was a convert, a Roman convert, who became a great Torah scholar, and he authored his own Greek translation of the Torah, known as the Akila translation of the Torah. Remnants of still we, some of which we some we still have today. So now earlier we mentioned, any questions before we go further? So earlier we mentioned that Ezra composed the first official version of the Aramaic translation of the Torah, and that Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly had instituted that when communities read the Torah, there should be a translator there who would translate it word verse by verse. And this custom of actually translating the Torah verse by verse continued for well over a thousand years, even long after Jews no longer spoke Aramaic. They would have a translator stand up there on the bima together with the Torah reader. The Torah reader would read a verse and the translator would translate it. It wasn't until the 10th century or so that Jews said, you know what, we don't understand the Aramaic any better than we understand the Hebrew, and they stopped doing it. It, it kind of fell out slowly, it appears, over a long period. Um, there were communities until very recently in Yemen and other places that still translated the Torah into Aramaic. Over the years, though, of the Second Temple period, as we remember, was at the very beginning of the Second Temple period, over the years of the Second Temple period, um, there were, um, o o over the years, it appears that because it was oral and it was memorized, different variations cropped up of the translation. So while Ezra composed the first official translation, different variations cropped up. And so by the end of the Second Temple period, there was no unified version anymore of the official translation of the Torah, of Ezra. There were many, many different versions over that developed over hundreds of years. In addition, there was a tendency in many Jewish communities to add midrashic interpretation. Midrash is the um, commentary, the traditions, um, and explanations of the Torah were added in Aramaic to the translation. But it's not the written down of the oral. Of the this is not. This is all. Or this was all oral at the time. They, uh, but they added the translators, who were kind of professional translators and teaching their you know, kind of practitioners of the trade to translate the Torah. Many of them, the people pre pre presumably who spoke Aramaic, liked to hear not just a literal translation of the Torah, but they were a direct translation. They, want, they liked hearing the explanation and the additional midrashic stories and traditions. So they added it to the translation. And so we actually, over the years, developed a number of translations that are interdispersed with Midrashic teachings and commentaries. Um, two of those translations were written down over time and survived. We have two such translations. One called Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, the translation attributed to Yonatan ben Uziel, although it's widely believed that he did not, Yonatan ben Uziel, who I'm soon going to mention, did translate, um, but he, the Targum Yonatan ben Uziel on the Torah is probably not written by him. And we have another translation called Targum Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem translation, which uh, also a 
translation with lots of commentary and midrashim all in um, found uh, 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 all kind of put into this translation. So it's more of a um, it's more than just a translation. It's a translation slash commentary. Um, <clears throat> in recent years, we've actually found manuscripts and parts of even more translations, similar midrashic translations um, from the from this period. Um, late towards the end of the second temple. Now remember, there was an official translation from Ezra just of the Torah itself. Towards the end of the Second Temple period, there was a student of Hillel. Hillel lived about 100 years before the destruction of the Temple, or in the late, the period just before the year zero. Um, Hillel died um, a couple years before, the, just before the year zero. Um, so a student of Hillel, one of his older students, Yonatan ben Uziel, translated the eight works of the Nevi'im, these eight books of Nevi'im of prophets, um, translated them into Aramaic. And we have that translation still today of Yonatan ben Uziel. Now there is a tradition, the Talmud tells us, that he wanted to translate the works of Ketuvim, the works of the, eight, the 11 books of writings as well, into Aramaic. And the, this heavenly voice came out and told him, do not translate it. Don't reveal the secret to my children. Why not, says the Talmud? Well, one of the books of Ketuvim is the book of Daniel. Daniel, we did a class on Daniel some time ago, but Daniel is a cryptic book that, in, well, the first half is some great stories, but the rest of it is a cryptic book that tells of the future predictions of the future. And if he were to translate it, he would elucidate it and explain what those predictions mean. And we don't want anyone to know. It's supposed to say, stay secret and unknown. And so therefore, he was not supposed to translate it. Following the destruction of the temple, there was a nephew of the emperor Hadrian by the name of Uncalus. He was a Roman um, from royal blood or from a noble um, family, Roman family, who converted to Judaism. There's a number of stories in the Talmud about Uncalus. He converted to Judaism and he became a great Jewish scholar. And although certainly as a Roman, his um, native tongue would have been Latin, and he wouldn't, his, not Aramaic, but he taught himself Aramaic, and saw the need for a unified, official, standardized version of Aramaic translation of the Torah. And so he wrote, he revised and standardized the Aramaic translation of the Torah. And that is known as the translation of Unculus. The sages greatly praised Unculus's work, and it quickly became the standard Aramaic translation of the Torah that all communities would use in from Unculus's time and on. They would use this official translation of the Torah of Unculus as the way they would translate the Torah. They would translate it as they read the Torah, and they continued to do so for hundreds of years after Unculus. And we, of course, still have Onkelos's translation today. It remains a classic, and it also remains a classic for understanding the Torah. You want to know what the words of the Torah mean? If you understand Aramaic, you can look at Onkelos's translation, and it helps you understand the Torah. Most commentaries, such as Rashi, most classic commentaries, um, use Onkelos extensively 
in their commentary to understand the meaning of the words of the Torah because it is the classic translation of the Torah and it remains a classic till today. It is printed in every, just about every single book of the Torah where um, that is any um, book of the Chumash that you find printed today will almost always be printed with Unkelis' translation alongside the words of the Torah itself. Um, you can open almost any work and you will find any book of the Torah and you will find Unkelis' translation there as well. So Unkelis' Aramaic translation served as the primary Aramaic translation for Jews who spoke Aramaic for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Aramaic, as we explained in our class on Aramaic, remained the language of Jews throughout the Middle East, um, from starting from the days of the Babylonian exile, which is about 2,500 years ago, all the way up to the Arab conquest, which was in the 600s. However, the Arab conquest changed it. The Arabs conquered Iraq and uh, Babylon and all of Syria, Israel, and Egypt, and all the way across North Africa. The Jews in all these places, who many, at least in the Middle East, spoke Aramaic, was their language, the Arabs brought Arabic and Arabic culture wherever they went. And within a century, the, most Jews were no longer speaking Aramaic. They began to speak Arabic. Most Jews were now speaking Arabic. But it wasn't until the 800s, or the, sorry, the 900s of the 10th century, that the leader of Babylonian Jewry at the time, and Babylon at the time was still the kind of center of Jewish life um, till about the year 1000. Babylon from the year, just quick recap, we, did, we spoke about this when we did our class on Babylonian Jewry, but Babylon or Iraq was the center of Jewish life from after the structure of the time, about the year 200 till about the year 1000, for 800 years. So, but um, Rav Sajagon was the leader of Jews in Babylon um, at, um, at, in, uh, in the 900s, and he wrote the first Arabic translation of the Torah. And as a result, um, Jews now are speaking Arabic, and Arabic was the most widely spoken Jewish language by this time, um, were had now a translation of the Torah into Arabic. Now, Rav Sadja Gon's translation is not just important because um, is not just important because um, it helped Jews who understand Arabic. He also made an effort to translate many obscure animals and plants and even stones that are found in the Torah. That. Weren't so, we weren't so clear on exactly what each one was. And he researched each one and made an effort to translate each one, each animal mentioned in the Torah, each plant mentioned in the Torah, each spice mentioned in the Torah, to translate it and find the translation. Um, which, and Rav Sajid Gohan serves as really the primary source today for translating many of these obscure words in the Torah to know what they are. We have from Rav Sajagon these obscure things like animals or plants um, or even stones 
um, that are mentioned in the Torah, um, we know their translation, or at least the, the start of the discussion of what they are, is from Rav Sadja Gaon. He translated into Arabic. Arabic is still widely used today, although it's evolved over, over 1,200 years, but it, it's still widely used today, and many of the words are still the same, and we're able to use that, Rav Sadja Gaon's translation, to know at least what he thought these words meant. So now, following Rav Sadja Gaon's translation, Jews generally did not translate the Torah for hundreds of years. Arabic-speaking Jews used Rav Sadja Gaon's translation. However, by the 10th century, most Jews had spread across Europe from the Middle East. And most Jews no longer spoke a single language. Jews many Jews, lived, Jews, many Jews lived in the Arab world, which the Arab world stretched from Iraq through Syria, Israel, Egypt, and all of North Africa into Andalusia or Spain. Um, but many Jews at the time, by the, by the 10th, 11th century, many Jews lived in northern Spain, where they would have spoken Spanish, um, or Catalan, or France, or Germany, um, or Eastern Europe, Jews lived in many other places, or Greece, or Turkey, which was then Byzantine, where they spoke Greek, um, so Jews, or Italy, where they spoke Latin, so Jews spoke many different languages by now. And so as a result, because there was no longer a single language like Aramaic or even Arabic had been for a while, a single language spoken by most Jews at this point, as a result, Jewish scholarship moved from the spoken language back to Hebrew. Because Hebrew was a language that all Jews was, were able to understand. Because the original Torah was in Hebrew, the prayers were in Hebrew, all Jews were taught Hebrew. So anyone writing from the 10th century on began to write exclusively in Hebrew. Most, except for those still in Arabic lands, some still wrote in Arabic. But outside Arabic lands, everyone began to write exclusively in Hebrew. And Hebrew really became the dominant language and went back to becoming the dominant language of Jewish scholarship and Jewish study. And so all books written from about the year 900 to 1000 are, um, are almost all written in Hebrew, except for books in Arabic lands that are still written in Arabic for another 200 years or so. But after that, everything is written almost exclusively in Hebrew. And so as a result, all Jews are generally, we Jews had universal schooling. Jews are taught Hebrew at a very young age, taught to read, to write Hebrew, to understand Hebrew, to be able to read the Torah at a very young age. And so Jews read the Torah in Hebrew. And so as a result, there was really no need to translate the Torah into other languages, into, um, into French or Spanish or uh, other languages. There were translations done, but nothing that ever became widely used. Um, because Jews generally spoke, spoke Hebrew. Later, Jews moved to Eastern Europe and Yiddish kind of became the um, main language, primary language of at least Ashkenazic Jews. Uh, but even so, Jews continued, scholarship continued to be written mostly in Hebrew. And Jews largely spoke, uh, understood, read and wrote Hebrew. Um, even Jews that were not, you know, even Jews that were not scholars, widely read, spoke and wrote Hebrew. And so while there were some books written in Yiddish and in Ladino and in other languages, um, the Torah itself was not generally translated um, during this period. The next major translation of the Torah doesn't happen until the 18th century. 
In the 18th century, that's the 1700s, mid-1700s, a Jew in Berlin called Moses Mendelssohn decided to translate the Torah into German and printed it in German alongside his commentary. Now, this translation was very, very controversial because it was not written in German for German-speaking Jews. Rather, it was tra he translated the Torah into German for Yiddish-speaking Jews. Because Moses Mendelssohn was a leader in a new movement that would later become known as Haskalah, or Jewish Enlightenment. And while the Jewish Enlightenment goes through various periods, its original goals in the 18th century was the belief, and we touched on it last week, the belief that the reason why Jews are persecuted in Europe was because they were culturally different, and in the view of many of these Haskalah leaders, thinkers, um, were culturally inferior to Christians. And so, if Jews became more culturally similar to Christians, which they thought was a superior culture, um, then they would no longer be hated and they would be um, appreciated by their um, Christian neighbors. And so there was this movement we spoke about last week to Christianize Judaism, but part of that movement was Jews should stop speaking Yiddish and should begin speaking German. And in order to help Jews speak German, Moses Mendelssohn, who had taught himself German, translated the Torah into German as a tool for Jews to learn German. <clears throat> um, many rabbis and Jewish leaders were very skeptical of this new movement. They believed or they were concerned that it would lead to assimilation. Although the leaders of the movement at first were religious Jews and, were, um, and uh, <clears throat> followed Jewish law, um, but many Jewish leaders were afraid that it would lead to assimilation. Indeed, it did. Over the 19th century, most of German Jewry ended up, the Haskell movement was very successful. Most German Jews dropped what had been Jew, distinct Jewish culture and became culturally German. And um, during that period also, most German Jews ended up assimilating um, and lost their Jewish identity, many converting to Christianity um, or once one no longer needed to be either Christian or Jewish, essentially assimilated and lost their Jewish identity. However, over the 19th century, as a result of modernization, as a result of ur urbanization, um, many Jews, uh, Jews in many places, no longer had solid Jewish education. And as a result, were no longer very familiar with Hebrew. And so there was a need now to translate the Torah into languages that Jews spoke because they didn't understand Hebrew. They didn't learn Hebrew in school as a child because they didn't go to Jewish schools, or at least not enough Jewish schooling, to be able to learn the language well. The place where it first, and perhaps more than anywhere else, became important was here in the United States. Most American Jews in the 19th century did not have a solid Jewish education. There were no Jewish schools in the United States until the very, very end of the 19th century. And even then, the vast majority of Jews never went to Jewish schools. Their Jewish schooling was very, very limited. They barely read Hebrew, let alone understood Hebrew. So the first translation of the Torah into English was done, and really the, probably the first translation to be widely used by a Jewish community was the translation since 
Rav Sajja Gold's translation, since Moses Mendelssohn's translation, was a translation into English by a fellow called Isaac Lesser, who was, or he went by Reverend Isaac Lesser, who was one of the first Jewish leaders in this country, and he translated it in 1845. And his translation of the Torah became the standard and was widely used in synagogues in the 19th century in the United States, given that many Jews in the synagogues did not understand the Hebrew of the Torah that they read. Um, later, in 1917, the Jewish Publication Society would publish another translation, and later they redid their classic translation in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, they retranslated, and that, for many Jewish homes, became kind of the official translation, and you still see in many Jewish homes, um, people often bring me um, the, the Jewish books of their parents who have passed um, because they want it disposed properly. Um, and uh, they all tend to have the um, JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, translations of the Torah or Tanakh, the scriptures, um, in their homes. It wasn't until the 1980s, in 1981, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, a um, great figure who wrote many, many wonderful works in English, um, really tra translated what, what could be called the first real scholarly translation of the Torah. It was published in 1981 under the name The Living Torah. Um, and that was really the um, first scholarly, um, really well done translation of the Torah in the United States that was widely used. Um, and in the same decade, in the 80s, really there was this explosion of translations. There was a translation made by Judaica Press. Um, and then in the late 1980s, Masora Publications translated the Torah in what became known as, under the imprint Art Scroll, in what they called the Stone Edition. <laughs> the Stone Edition, which was printed in the late 1980s, quickly became the most widely used translation in the United States. It is without a doubt, since it was published um, just over 30 years ago, um, it has gone through dozens of prints. And uh, it is without a doubt today the most widely used translation. Um, in my personal opinion, perhaps even the best translation that has been done, it was very, very well done, which is probably why it's so widely used. It's not only a translation, there's also a very good commentary collected from various Jewish sources that runs along the translation. They later translated the whole Tanakh, all of scripture, but the stone edition translation of the Torah is really, um, has, um, has become the standard. But in the years since, in the past 30 years, many, many other translations of the Torah have been made into English. Today there is a wide range of translations by many, many different publishers, many, many different styles. Some, one that we use here in our, the, in our, um, in our synagogue, the synagogue edition published by Kahat, um, that has, similar to the Yonatan Benozil that we spoke about, has midrashic and commentaries kind of interdispersed into the translation. Um, and, uh, and, and there are many other, many other types and many other translations have been done in recent years. Um, not only have many translations in the last 30 years, but there's been an explosion of Jewish scholarship in English and Jewish classics translated into English. Today, the entire Talmud has been translated in three different translations. The Midrashim have been translated, the books of Maimonides, the books of Rashi, um, the, the Jerusalem Talmud is in the middle of being translated. Um, the Mishnah has a number of different trans translations. Many, many other Jewish classics, hundreds of other Jewish classics 
have now been old Jewish classics have been translated into English in the past 30 years. Um, in addition to many new works of Jewish scholarship written in English, today the Torah library available in English is huge in numbers in the thousands of books. Um, and today a person can become a great Torah scholar without knowing Hebrew, since just about every Jewish classic today is widely available in English and has been translated all down the last 30 years. Um, the Torah is widely, widely available with English translations. Now, translations, by their definition, are commentaries. Why? The original work, when you translate, can be translated in different ways. When a translator chooses to translate using this word as opposed to that word, they are choosing how to understand the original. I had a relative who worked on a number of important translations and has translated a number of important works um, who once told me that translating is not a science, it's an art. Because it really involves um, being able to understand and study and then being able to express the way you understand the reading, right? You're basically expressing yourself, right? It's a form of expression translating. There's no correct way to translate. There's many different possible ways of translating. So any translation by definition will be a commentary. And it's important to remember that every translation, which is an advantage, that when you translate, you now have a commentary and every translation should be seen as a commentary. But it also helps us understand and realize that the translations are never exact translations of the original. There is no such thing as an exact translation. In fact, not only can everything be read in different <coughs> perspectives and different ways, different ways, ways to read the same thing, and translators will have to choose how they're reading it, but no language translates for it into another language. Why? Because idioms and phrases in various languages just don't translate. Words, often languages, every language has synonyms, right? Different words that mean the same thing, but there's always very slight differences. One synonym's more positive, one's more negative, one's harsher, one's softer, right? So there's different ways the words are used. Those nuances never translate from one language to another. And that's true even in very similar languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, which are very similar. It's even more so, or even so, of Semitic languages like Hebrew and Arabic. It's even more true when you have totally different languages like Hebrew and English which have totally different syntax, totally different style, totally different um, grammar. Um, when you translate from one language to another, it's going to be totally different. You cannot express the nuance of the original language in the translation. Now, Torah is particularly a problem because Torah is a cryptic work. Torah was written as a code to help us understand the written, to help us re, uh, recall the written Torah, to help us preserve the oral Torah, sorry. The written Torah reads as a simple read, but it really is written in code. You can't translate code. So even if we translate, we're only translating the very basic meaning. We cannot translate the code unless we write the whole commentary of the code in there. So the translations of the Torah are greatly limiting. Each one is a particular commentary, meaning that it voids the other commentaries or ignores the other possible ways to explain it. Uh, it's an imperfect, it loses all the nuances, and for the Torah itself, it loses all the deeper meaning. 
So translation is greatly limiting. And it's important to remember that. And that is why it is so important to be able to, to keep the original. Why our sages were afraid of creating a new official Greek version of the Torah where you drop the original because the translation is not accurate by definition. And so therefore it's really important to keep the original and to study the original and the original Hebrew. The only way you can truly study Torah is by studying the original. Some of the great works of Judaism were, were written in other languages. The Talmud is written in Aramaic. Um, Maimonides although he wrote in the 12th century, he wrote in Arabic, even though many Jews in his day did not read Arabic. And already because his works were very popular, um, his works, while he was, during his lifetime, his works were already translated. And many commentaries were, were written on Maimonides' works. But many of those commentaries only were writing commentaries on the translations. Later, the 19th century, 20th century, a lot of new translations were done of Maimonides' original Arabic works. And what they found was that a lot of points made by the commentaries were based on the translations. But if they would have had the original, they would have never said that. Right? So the translations are very limiting. And in fact, the translator of Maimonides, um, Rabbi Avrami ibn Tibbon, in his, in his introduction writes that translations by their definition are inaccurate. And so, um, so the Torah, we really need to retain the original Hebrew. It's very important to not just retain the original Hebrew, to study the original Hebrew, understand and that's the only real way to study Torah. And yet, translations are still very helpful. They're helpful for those that, for whatever reason, did not get a solid Jewish education and were never taught Hebrew and find it hard to study in Hebrew, they're very helpful. They've made the Torah accessible to those who, are, who don't know Hebrew. Today, the vast majority of Jews don't speak Hebrew and don't understand Hebrew, don't even read Hebrew. And so for all of that, for, all, for those Jews, they need these translations. The translations have made the Torah accessible. And if the goal of the Torah is to spread everywhere, to be explained, it should be able to be studied in all languages. Even people that do speak Hebrew find it easier to read in translation and are able to use translation. But there is a great, while there's a disadvantage in translation, which is why we can never lose the Hebrew, there's a great advantage in translation. Because, uh, and that's, that, that it makes it accessible especially in a time when most people don't understand Hebrew, most Jews don't understand Hebrew anymore. And that's why Moses translated the Torah originally to different languages, to teach us and for us to know that the Torah can and should be translated into different languages so that we should, uh, that we should be able to study the Torah even if we don't speak Hebrew, even if we don't understand Hebrew, that's not an excuse. You still have to study Torah. It's available in other languages too. And yet, we have to be very careful when we translate to translate accurately that we don't corrupt the Torah. And we have to remember that when we read translations, remember the imperfection of translations. Remember that it's only a translation. Always keep that in mind. And so, on the one hand, it's very important that we learn Hebrew, study in Hebrew, and retain the original Hebrew Torah. And we Jews have retained the original Hebrew Torah. Although the Christians have taken the translations and corrupted them even further, we have the original Hebrew. 
And we've continued to study it throughout our, throughout our history. In the original Hebrew, we still have Torah scrolls in the original Hebrew. And yet, the translation is a great aid. And translations, um, particularly in a period like today when most Jews don't speak or understand Hebrew, um, has allowed anyone to study Torah in each and in any, uh, uh, no matter, uh, and not just the Torah itself, but many, many other books. It has opened up Torah for anyone, anyone who speaks English today, French, Spanish, as many other languages things have been translated into, but especially English, there's a vast library in English. Anyone who speaks English can study a huge, huge library, library of Torah. And um, just to conclude, I want to again put in a plug for these Chayenu booklets that I put out every week that are yours to take. Um, you can also get an app. There's an app online you can get where they take many different parts, the Torah itself, the Parsha, Maimonides, um, the Tanya, many other important works, and they translate different parts into English and um, each week a kind of different section to allow you to become a scholar if you don't want to buy all those books or you feel too overwhelmed by the library. It's too much to study. You have one book of about 200 pages a week if you could cover that or at least parts of it, certain sections. Um, and you could, you could pick it up every week and study these as well. Um, so making Torah available to everyone.